the Jewish leaders made no attempt to conceal their excitement. 30 pieces of silver had been a very small price to pay to have Jesus finally in their grasp. Their own law dictated that prisoners must be tried in public and by daylight. But such details couldn't contain their lust for his blood. And by the time that the sun rose over Jerusalem, they were already beginning Jesus' third hearing. Amazingly, with three long years to prepare their case, they still had neither truth nor lies on which to convict him. Though many false witnesses, were told, came forward, verse 60. And finally, two of these so-called witnesses remembered a particular claim Jesus had made about destroying and rebuilding the temple, and Caiaphas seizes his opportunity. Jesus had claimed to be Israel's true king, the promised Messiah, who was known as the Son of God. Now, if he could be forced under oath to do so again, they would easily convict him, could easily convict him of sedition against Caesar. And Jesus obliged willingly quoting from the book of Daniel to identify himself as the Son of Man, verse 64, whom Daniel had prophesied would destroy and outlast the mighty Roman Empire. Such revolutionary talk was all that they needed to carry out their plan. And Caiaphas stands up and an extraordinary act of outrage and exaltation tears his high priestly robes, verse 65, an act that by Jewish law now ends his high priesthood. And just note in passing that he tears his robes while Jesus' robes remain intact as the soldiers cast lots for them during his crucifixion verse, uh, over in chapter 27. So Caiaphas ceases to be high priest, but Jesus continues forever to be our high priest. Then came the first of the beatings, spitting, striking, slapping and abusing, brutal, vicious and already out of control. And at first light, chapter 27 verse 2, they bind him and hand him over to Pilate, the Roman governor in Palestine, because only he can sanction the death penalty that they're after. Um, Pilate was probably hoping for a quiet Passover feast until the arrival of this early morning prisoner. Are you the king of the Jews, he asked, verse 11, struggling to reconcile the appearance of this battered and bloodied man with the outlandish claims that have been made against him? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replies. Now confronted with Jesus, Pilate finds himself caught in a dilemma. He knows Jesus is innocent. You know, he wasn't born yesterday. He can see that it's out of pure envy that the religious leaders have handed Jesus over to him, verse 18. Even his wife tells him, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, verse 19. So three times, Pilate goes to the crowd and urges them to release him. But the crowd won't be having any of it. And he can see that they're becoming increasingly restless and aggressive, shouting all the louder, we're told, crucify him. And so we come again to this desperate question of his in verse 22. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is the Messiah? What is he to do? Pilate learns what millions have learned since that that time, that Jesus forces you to choose sides. You're either for him or against him. 
And so we see Pilate squirming, desperately trying to avoid being the decision maker, looking for any escape route possible. But the crowds whipped up by the religious leaders are having none of it. And Pilate, verse 24, realizing that he's getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, took water and washed his hands in front of them, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. To which the people made that terrible reply, let his blood be on us and on our children. See, the truth about Jesus is too costly for Pilate. He won't risk his job, his reputation, by releasing him. He's caught between self-interest and truth. And so he passes the buck for the sake of ambition. He's a man desperate to remain neutral. But in the end, it may be Pilate who's sitting on the judgment seat, verse 19. But it's also Pilate who's being judged. He's a man who wants to avoid responsibility, but he's got to choose. He can't duck it as he tries to in verse 24. You know, it's your responsibility. Not to choose for Jesus is to choose against him. There's no neutral place. Indecision is a decision. No judgment is a judgment. What shall I do with Jesus? It's the only question that counts in our lives. It's the only one we have to give an answer to. And so we're told in verse 26, Pilate released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This was his answer to that question. And so verse 27, let's read it together. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they'd mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes. Then they led him away to crucify him. The language you see of mockery is everywhere. Here we have the rough barrack room humor and brutality of the whole company of soldiers, we're told. Probably around 600 of them. All bored and frustrated in this backwater of the empire. And suddenly, they're given some free entertainment. This man Jesus has handed over to them for a bit of amusement. And so they take him into the praetorium, in other words, the palace, and have some rough sport with him. And the irony of this guard of honor taking King Jesus into the palace, not to honor him as king, but to mock and abuse him. These rough soldiers speak better than they know. Hail, King of the Jews. And they humiliate him. They strip him and mock him, putting a scarlet robe on him, probably one of the soldier's cloaks. Scarlet, the color of royalty. And they twist together an ugly crown of vicious thorns and force it, jam it on his head. That's what the word set in verse 29 implies. They find a rough stick as a mock scepter and they use it to strike him on the head again and again, continually, just on and on and on. 
And then at the end of verse 31, no more details, just the simplicity, the starkness of the words. They led him away to crucify him. Jesus, you know, seemingly impotent in the hands of his captors, not saying or doing anything. But to Matthew's readers, the silence doesn't detract, but adds power to what's going on. Why? Because it was all predicted. Matthew, you see, throughout his gospel, has repeatedly used Old Testament scriptures to back up Jesus' claim, back up what is going on. And we constantly read him saying, this was to fulfill, or this is what the prophets had had written. Matthew is proving that Jesus is God's chosen king, that he's come to fulfill all the longings of all the years of waiting. But here's the thing. From chapter 27, verse 27 onwards, direct statements such as, this is to fulfill, disappear altogether. And what we have instead is an almost perfect blow-by-blow fulfillment of a part of the Old Testament without any overt reference to it. And that part, that passage, is Psalm 22, which is being fulfilled, enacted in almost precise detail in front of our eyes through these chapters. In fact, this psalm now becomes the grid through which we're meant to understand what's going on here in the passion story. Matthew doesn't point it out explicitly because he assumes his readers will see this. They will know their scriptures. It's so obvious. Every detail of the crucifixion reproduced in detail. Let me quote, without you having to turn to it, let me quote just a few verses from that psalm to help us see this. It begins with the unmistakable words that Jesus echoed on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It goes on. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Jesus, the only man whose biography was written before he was born. Things that look seemingly out of control are all as God said they would be. The cross didn't take Jesus by surprise or catch God off guard. We're told, aren't we, in the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation, that before the foundation of the world, in the book of life, the lamb was slain. When God created the world, he knew the cost of redeeming it. And God loved us so much that he was willing to pay that cost himself. Ken Costa says in his book, Strange Kingdom, the greatest agony he could ever experience unlocked the greatest opportunity Jesus would ever have to show his love for you and me. And because of that, we read in Philippians that God has given to Jesus the name that is above every name because he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And one day, one day, 
every person will know how to answer that question. What shall I do with Jesus? Because on that day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What shall we do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? What can we do but bow down and worship him, Lord and Saviour?